The CARES Act, which was signed into law on March 27, 2020, contains many provisions aimed at aiding both individuals and small businesses. This episode breaks down the major components of the new law. Welcome to the Accounting Tips for Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Jeff Skolnick and I am a CPA with 35 years of experience working with small business owners, entrepreneurs, and network marketers on how to make their business more successful by understanding how taxes can work in their favor and not hurt their business. Each and every week I'm going to come to you with short, quick, and helpful tips on not only how to make sure you are doing everything possible to minimize your income tax liability, but also how to create the income for your business that you truly deserve. The stimulus package that was just passed is close to 900 pages long. There are a number of programs in the package aimed at aiding both individual and business taxpayers. There will be additional guidance issued in the coming weeks and I will update you as soon as possible. With that being said, here's what we know so far. And I want to start off with the individual provisions of the law. Most people have heard by now of the $1,200 recovery rebates for individuals. These are considered refundable credits against the taxpayer's 2020 income tax. These payments are limited by the adjusted gross income or AGI of the taxpayer. For single individuals with AGI no greater than $75,000, they will receive the full $1,200. For single taxpayers with an AGI greater than $75,000, the $1,200 amount is phased out by 5% of the amount AGI exceeds $75,000 with the amount being reduced to zero for taxpayers with AGI exceeding $99,000. So in other words, you start off with, if your AGI is $75,000 or less, you get the entire $1,200 amount. As you continue your adjusted gross income towards $99,000, that $1,200 is phased out. So in other words, when you're halfway between $75,000 and $99,000, so let's say $87,000, half of that $1,200 amount is phased out, you will still receive $600. It gets keeps getting phased out. Once you hit $99,000, your rebate will be zero. Now, for individuals that are filing as head of household, the $1,200 amount begins its phase out at $112,500 and is reduced to zero for taxpayers with AGI greater than $136,500. Married taxpayers filing jointly are allowed a $2,400 rebate, which begins to phase out at $150,000 of AGI and is completely eliminated for taxpayers with AGI exceeding $198,000. There is also an additional $500 per child for qualifying dependent children under age 17. Uh, these are the same children that are eligible for the $2,000 a year child tax credit. Now the government will electronically deposit or issue checks based on your most recently filed income tax return. If you have filed 2019, they will use 2019. If you have not yet filed, they will use your 2018 return. Okay, retirement plans. Under normal circumstances, unless a taxpayer meets one of the exceptions, if an individual withdraws money from a retirement plan before reaching age 59 and a half, not only is that withdrawal subject to income tax, but it is also assessed a 10% penalty for early withdrawal. The 10% penalty will not apply to coronavirus-related distributions. 
Coronavirus-related distributions are defined as distributions made from an eligible retirement plan during 2020 to an individual that is either diagnosed with COVID-19, whose spouse or dependent is diagnosed with the virus, or has experienced adverse financial consequences as a result of being quarantined, being furloughed or laid off, or having work hours reduced due to such virus or disease being unable to work due to a lack of childcare due to such virus or disease, closing or reducing hours of a business owned or operated by the individual due to such virus or disease, or other factors as determined by the Secretary of State. This exception applies to distributions of up to $100,000. Keep in mind, these distributions will still be subject to income tax. So the law basically allows you to pull out up to $100,000. You don't have to pay the 10% penalty if it was money you pulled out in 2020. As long as you can prove it had anything to do with the coronavirus crisis. And the rules here obviously are very liberal. It's whether you have it, your spouse, dependent has it, if you have reduced hours, if you have to be home for childcare because your child can't go to school. So they tried to pretty much cover any, any area where you might have been affected by the virus. Now... The distributions that I just discussed are subject to income tax. You won't have penalty, but they are still subject to income tax. But they will be spread rateably over a three-year period. In other words, you'll pay tax on them in 2020, 2021, and 2022 just to ease the burden unless the taxpayer elects not to spread the income. Uh, let's say for some reason that you thought you might be in a lower income tax bracket in 2020 than 2021 or 22, and you still had the ability to pay the tax, you might make that election. Now, individuals are also allowed to repay the withdrawn amounts anytime over a three-year period beginning on the day after the distribution was taken. If withdrawn amounts are repaid, the transaction will be treated as a rollover. The normal rule of having to repay within 60 days in order to qualify as a rollover is waived. And the reason that's important is rollovers are not taxed. Uh, Think of the typical example. Someone has a 401k uh, and they leave a place of employment. They take the money out of the 401k. They roll it over into an IRA. They're not going to pay tax on that. That's still in a retirement vehicle. uh, But they again, they've taken it from one plan to another, rolled it into another qualified plan. Typically, if you take the money directly and it doesn't go institution to institution, but it's, it, it's, but it's distributed to the individual, the individual then has 60 days to contribute it to another retirement plan and still be considered a rollover. Here, what they're saying is basically they're, they're, they're waiving that rule. Okay. If you are an owner of a qualified retirement plan, not an IRA, typically you are allowed to borrow up to $50,000, which may, must be repaid within five years unless the proceeds are used to purchase a principal residence. The new law allows loans of up to $100,000 if they are taken within the 180 days beginning on the date of enactment of the law, March 27, 2020. Additionally, if a loan from a retirement plan had a due date falling between March 27, 2020 and December 31, 2020, it will be delayed one year. Required Minimum Distributions or RMDs. Recent legislation passed raised the age at which RMDs were required to begin. This law was passed in December of 2019. The age was moved from 70 and a half to 72. The new law waives all required minimum distributions for 2020 without regard to whether the taxpayer has been impacted by the coronavirus. Qualified charitable contributions. In 2020, 
Taxpayers will be allowed an above-the-line deduction for charitable deductions of up to $300. Typically, taxpayers only receive credit for charitable contributions if they itemize their income tax deductions. This rule allows all taxpayers to deduct up to $300 whether they itemize or not. Contributions, which are usually limited to 50% of AGI, can be unlimited in 2020 for individual taxpayers. Corporations are normally limited to 10% of their net income for charitable contributions, will be allowed deductions of up to 25% of net income in 2020. Employer payments of student loans. Employers are permitted to pay up to $5,250 of student principal and interest loan payments, whether paid to the employee or to a lender on any qualified education loan incurred by the employee for the employee. So for example, it cannot be for an employee's child. This provision is uh, for payments made during 2020 only. Now I wanna get into the retirement provisions of the law. And I wanna start off by talking about the emergency increase in unemployment compensation benefits. This provision provides those individuals receiving unemployment benefits an additional $600 per week for a period up to four months, so only through July 31st, 2020. This additional $600 per week compensation is not taken into account when determining income for purposes of Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, benefits. An additional 13 weeks of unemployment compensation is available through December 31st, 2020 to qualified individuals. Qualified individuals are individuals who have exhausted all rights to regular compensation under the state law or under federal law with respect to a benefit year. So in other words, they've used their 26 weeks of unemployment, have no rights to regular compensation with respect to a week under such law or uh, other state unemployment compensation law, or to compensation under federal law, and are not receiving compensation with respect to such week under unemployment compensation law of Canada, and are able to work, available to work, and actively seeking work. Uh, more simply put into plain English, if somebody has exhausted their 26 weeks of unemployment benefit, they'll be able to extend 13 weeks, but uh, they're not allowed to be working, but they do have to be able to work, available to work, and actively seeking work. But obviously, if they're getting paid, they're not going to be eligible for unemployment. So the weekly benefit amount is the weekly benefit amount authorized under the unemployment law of the state where the covered individual is employed plus $600. The $600 is for a period of up to four months. Again, it goes through July 31st of 2020. Now, the pandemic unemployment assistance. The pandemic unemployment assistance program extends benefits to self-employed individuals, which would um, include independent contractors and sole proprietors who would not normally qualify for unemployment benefits. These individuals would have to self-certify that they were otherwise able to work, but are unable to, to due to the coronavirus pandemic. It does not include those with the ability to work remotely with pay. So in other words, if you can work from home and you're still getting paid, you're not eligible for the unemployment. Or for individuals receiving sick leave or other paid leave benefits. These individuals would be covered for any weeks they're unable to work because of the pandemic between January 27, 2020 and December 31st, 2020, limited to a total of 39 weeks. So again, 39 weeks, it's the same number that uh, of, of everybody else that I just covered in the last section. 
And the weekly benefit amount is the same weekly benefit amount that I just went over, which is the um, un- the amount un- authorized under the unemployment law of the state where the covered individual is employed, plus $600. And again, the $600 a week is for a period of up to four months. And that pretty much covers the individual portions of the tax law. The next part I want to get to is the Keeping Americans Paid in Employment Act. And the first item under that is the Paycheck Protection Program. This is the one that you're going to hear a lot about. Um, This might be the best program in the new law for small businesses. Generally, any business that uh, that employs less than 500 employees qualifies. This includes self-employed individuals, nonprofit organizations, veterans organizations, and tribal business concerns. The law specifically includes sole proprietors, independent contractors, and eligible self-employed individuals. The maximum amount of the loan is the lesser of, this is a mouthful, of the average total monthly payments by the applicant for payroll costs incurred during the one-year period before the date on which the loan is made, Except in the case of the applicant that is a seasonal employer, the average total monthly payments for payroll shall be for the 12-week period beginning March 15, 2019, uh, or at the election of the eligible recipient, March 1, 2019, and ending June 30, 2019. And then once you come up with your average monthly cost, no matter which of those methods you use, multiply by 2.5 and see which is greater, that amount or $10 million. So obviously in most cases, it's not going to be the $10 million. It's going to be limited by much, much, much at a much lower amount. So stated more simply, an employer calculates their average monthly payroll costs and multiplies that figure by 2.5 and compares that to $10 million. And whichever is less will be the maximum amount. So let's say a company determines their monthly payroll costs to be $40,000. The maximum loan allowed is $40,000 multiplied by 2.5 or $100,000. $100,000 is far less than 10 million and would therefore be the maximum. Now, one of the biggest keys is to, to determine the definition of payroll costs. These are defined in the law as payments of salary, wage, commission, tip or equivalent, payment for vacation, parental, family, medical or sick leave, Allowance for a dismissal or separation payment. Uh, I'm sorry. Allowance for a dismissal or separation payment for the provisions of group health care benefits, including insurance premiums, retirement benefits, state or local assessed taxes assessed on employee compensation, payments to a sole proprietor or independent contractor that is wage, commission, income, net earnings from self-employment, or similar compensation that does not exceed $100,000 in one year. Now, the above definition allows not only wages, but also payments to independent contractors and self-employed individuals, health insurance payments, and retirement benefits. These are some things that are not allowed as payroll costs, and they include, in fact, I'm, I'm sorry, there are some things that are not allowed as payroll costs, and these are include annual salary of an employee in excess of $100,000, which must be prorated. So in other words, if we look at a four-month window, the prorated amount of a maximum $100,000 salary would be $33,333 because, in other words, four months is one-third of the year, so we have to max the salary of $100,000, so we wouldn't be able to look at more than $33,333 in a four-month period. Also excluded are federal payroll taxes withholding, uh, federal tax 
payroll taxes, withholding and railroad retirement tax, as well as payments to individual whose principal place of residence is outside the United States. Now, the loan proceeds are allowed to be used, once you receive the maximum, are allowed to be used for payroll costs, which I just defined, costs of group health care benefits, which actually are part of payroll costs, and insurance premiums, uh, again, health care insurance premiums we're talking about here, interest on any mortgage obligation, rent, utilities, and interest on any other debt obligations occurred before the covered period. Covered period is February 15th, 2020 through June 30th, 2020. So again, once you receive the proceeds, you can either use them for payroll costs, which include the health care benefits, um, interest on any mortgage obligation, or rent or utilities. Other loan provisions. These loans are made without any personal guarantees of the shareholders, members, or partners. There is no collateral required, no SBA fees, no requirement to prove that the small business is unable to obtain credit elsewhere. Loans are available for up to 10-year term at 4% interest with six months and up to one year deferral of principal and interest payments. Now, borrower certifications. The borrower certifies that the uncertainty of the current economic conditions make the loan request necessary to support the ongoing operations of the eligible recipient. Acknowledging that the funds will be used to retain workers and maintain payroll or make mortgage payments, lease payments, and utility payments. Uh, and the last thing that the, that the application, that last certification is the eligible recipient does not have an application pending for a loan under the subsection for the same purpose and duplicative amounts applied for and received under a covered loan. So in other words, you're not allowed to, under the SBA, uh, apply the same expense in two different loan areas, which makes sense. You're not going to be able to double dip on it. And I'm sorry, there was one more provision. During the period between February 15, 2020 and December 31st, 2020, that the eligible recipient has not received the amounts under the subsection for the same purpose and duplicate amounts applied for received under a covered loan. Again, that also is just saying you're not going to be able to double dip on the same expenses. Now, Probably the coolest part of the Paycheck Protection Program is the loan forgiveness feature. The amount of the loan that will be forgiven is the actual amount spent during the eight-week period following the loan origination date for payroll costs, which, are, which again, I've defined interest on any covered mortgage obligation, rent, or utilities. So the amount of loan forgiveness may not exceed the principal borrowed. There are reductions to the forgiveness amount if the average number of full-time employees is lower during the eight-week period following the loan origination date than it is for either the period from February 15, 2019 through June 30, 2019 or January 1, 2020 through February 29, 2020. Borrow may choose which of these two methods they prefer. So... Um, a reduction in full-time employees during the period beginning February 15, 2020 and ending on April 26, 2020 will be disregarded if by June 30, 2020, the borrower has eliminated the reduction in the number of full-time employees. Um, so what they're basically saying here is if your average number of full-time employees, let's say was 10 before the virus, if you get the money, if your average number of full-time employees drops to eight, then even if you spend the money exactly the way you should, 
you're going to get a 20% uh, reduction in the loan forgiveness. So in, because your average number of employees dropped from 10 to 8, you're not going to get 100% of the forgiveness, even if you use the, the, the expenses the way you were supposed to, you're only going to get an 80% reduction. And that's because you have to remember what the purpose of this program. The purpose of this program is to keep people working. So if you are given money and you cut your workforce, that's going to penalize you. Now, here's, a, here's another really cool, well, actually, before I get into that, the borrowers that must, borrowers must submit documentation to the lender when asking for forgiveness. The lender has 60 days to issue its decision on forgiveness. And then here again is a really cool part of this. Normally, when a taxpayer receives cancellation of debts, in other words, forgiveness, it is considered taxable income. However, these loans are considered an exception and are not taxable income, even if they for, are forgiven. So that is a really cool feature of them. Um, now I want to go over a small program, Entrepreneurial Development. This provides small business development centers and women's business centers financial assistance in the form of grants for education, training, and advising business enterprises on accessing resources and business responses to the coronavirus. There's the Minority Business Develop Agency, and pretty much that does the same thing as I just mentioned for the entrepreneurial development, uh, but, but it does the same thing for minority business centers. Okay, next thing I want to get into is the Emergency Economic Injury Disaster Loans. Sometimes you'll see it written as EIDLs. Now, the definition of businesses that are eligible for EIDLs is the same as entities eligible for the Paycheck Protection Program. Borrowers request up to $10,000 in an emergency advance, which is paid within three days after the application is submitted. These funds can be used for paid sick leave for employees unable to work due to the direct effect of the coronavirus, payroll costs during business dis disruptions or substantial shutdowns, increased material costs incurred because the materials are unavailable from the applicant's original source due to interrupted supply chains. Also, they could get these funds can be used for rent, mortgage payments, and repaying obligations that can't be met during the revenue losses. Applicants are not required to repay any amounts advanced under this provision, even if they are subsequently denied a loan. Um, want to go resources and services in languages other than English. The resources for the coronavirus will be made available to small business concerns in the 10 most commonly spoken language other than English. Subsidy for loan certain loan payments. The SBA will pay all principal, interest, and fees on all existing SBA loan products with the exception for the Paycheck Protection Program for six months as relief to small businesses negatively affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Loans that are already on deferment will receive six months of payment by the SBA, beginning with the first payment after the deferral period. Loans made in the first six months after enactment will also receive a, a full six months of loan payments by the SBA. Uh, I wanted to mention bankruptcy. The new law provides increased relief to debtors under bankruptcy chapters 7, 11, and 13, allowing for plan modifications to debtors that have experienced coronavirus-related hardships. Uh, I'm not a bankruptcy attorney. I'm really not going to try to explain any more about these provisions. And if you are in bankruptcy, you should be dealing with a bankruptcy attorney. Just know that there is some relief that's available and obviously talk to your attorney about uh, a little more uh, guidance in that area. 
So now I want to get into um, some business provisions of the law. And the first one I want to get into is the employee retention credit for employers subject to closure due to the coronavirus. Eligible employers are allowed a 50% refundable credit of qualified wages, including health benefits, paid between March 13th, 2020 and December 31st, 2020. There is a maximum of $10,000 per employee per quarter. Eligible employers are defined as employers carrying on a trade or business during 2020 and whose business is fully or partially suspended during a calendar quarter due to a shutdown order or whose gross receipts are less than 50% of the gross receipts of the same calendar quarter in the prior year. All right. So in other words, if you were either on a partial shutdown or total shutdown, or if your gross receipts were 50% or less than 50% of the corresponding quarter from the prior year. So in other words, if let's say between April 1st and June 30th of 2019, your gross receipts were $100,000. If for the period April 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 2020, they are less than $50,000, that is a quarter that would count. And obviously, as I mentioned, any quarter in which you're partially or totally shut down. Now, qualified wages is different with people that have um, more than 100 full-time employees and people that have under 100 employees. So I'm gonna go over qualified wages for eligible employers with greater than 100 full-time employees are, wa- are wages paid to employees not providing services when the business is fully or partially suspended during a calendar quarter, again, due to either a shutdown or, or the drop in gross receipts. So there's a limitation on these employees based on the amount such employees would have been paid for working an equivalent duration during the 30 days immediately preceding the coronavirus. So what they're saying here is if you have greater than 100 employees and you're in a partial shutdown, the only qualified wages you have are the wages for the individuals we're paying that are not providing services. We're not talking about the people that are providing services for you. These are the people that you're paying that are sitting on the sidelines. And the last provision where they're talking about the limitation based on the duration of the 30 days previous to the virus, let's say you were paying somebody $15 an hour before the crisis hit. You can't give them a raise to $20 an hour during the crisis and expect reimbursement for it. That's all that means. Now, qualified wages for eligible employers with no more than 100 full-time employees are all wages paid, whether or not the employer is open for business or subject to a shutdown order. When I say all wages, that means these include people that you're paying that are doing work for you. So there's just, there's a difference uh, that it's harsher on companies with more than 100 employees than it is for ones with under 100, uh, with 100 or less employees. Now, another thing to remember here is the credit, this credit, this employee retention credit, and it's a pretty big credit when you say 50% of wages. So let's say you pay 10 people $10,000 each during a quarter that you qualify. That's $100,000. You're allowed a 50% credit on that $100,000 or $50,000. And that's a credit against your 941 taxes. And 941 taxes are the Social Security, Medicare, and federal withholding of employees. So you're allowed to take that off and not only reduce the 941 tax to zero, but whatever amount um, that you go below zero, you are allowed to take that as a refund. However, this credit is not available for those employers that are receiving a covered loan under the Paycheck Protection Program that I just discussed a little while ago. Okay, now I wanna get into delay of payment of employer payroll taxes. 
employers, including those paying self-employment taxes, uh, are permitted to to delay the payment of their 6.2% portion of Social Security or self-employment taxes incurring between March 27, 2020 and March 31st, 2020. Uh, and what happens is 50% of the deferred amount is due on December 31st, 2021, and they remember by December 31st, 2022. Okay, so what I want, and this provision is not applicable to any taxpayer that has had loan forgiveness that I mentioned under the um, PPP program. Uh, the payroll protection program. So what happens here is, if you're an employer, when you're an employer, the employee has 6.2% of their paycheck withheld for Social Security benefits, um, and 1.45% for Medicare. Now employers have to match that, so they also pay the 6.2% and 1.45%, so 7.65%. Self-employed individuals don't pay Social Security and Medicare, but they have something called self-employment tax. So what the law is saying here that the employer, whether you're a self-employed employer paying self-employment tax, or whether you are an employer that's actually paying wages and paying Social Security and Medicare tax, either of these taxpayers are allowed to take their 6.2% of any wages that um, are paid between March 27th, 2020, which is the day again the law was signed, through the end of 2020, they're allowed to take that amount, whatever that 6.2% amount is, and instead of paying in 2020, which they would normally have to, they're allowed to take that money and spread it, pay 50% by December 31st of 2021 and 50% by December 31st of 2022. Modifications for net operating losses or NOLs. Net operating losses incurred in 2018, 2019, and 2020 can offset 100% of taxable income. Now, originally, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act had previously limited NOLs to 80% of of income. So in other words, let's say you had $100,000 of income and you had a net operating loss in excess of that $100,000. Up until 2018, so for any laws up through 2017, you were allowed to take those net operating losses and reduce your income to zero. When the new law came out at the end of December of 2017, it stated that beginning in 2018, you were only going to be able to offset 80% based on an NOL. So in other words, let's say you had a $100,000 net income, uh, you had, let's just make up a number and say $200,000 net operating loss, so certainly far more than you needed for the $100,000, you would still in that circumstance have to limit the loss allowed to $80,000. So in other words, the taxpayer would still have to pay income tax on $20,000. So the law basically says here uh, that for 2018, 2019, and 2020, the rule goes back to the old rule, which is you can offset 100% of taxable income with a net operating loss. Additionally, Again, before 2018, net operating losses were allowed to be carried back two years and then forward 20 years. And the reason you carry back a net operating loss is you carry the loss back to a year. Again, let's say there's a two-year carryback. So if the loss occurred in 2017, for instance, you would bring it back to first 2015 and offset the income for 2015 and maybe amend the return and get a refund. And then in 2016. Now, once the law passed again at the end of 2017, it said beginning in 2018, net operating losses were no longer allowed to be carried back and free up refunds. They all had to be carried forward, but they could be carried forward indefinitely. 
The new law says that the losses that occur in 2018, 2019, and 2020 can, again, not only offset 100% of taxable income, but they can be carried back five years. So your 2018 loss can be carried back to 2013, 14, 15, 16, and 17. If you still have some unused portion, it would go forward. 2019 obviously would go back and start with 2014 and go forward. So again, any losses in 2018, 19, or 20 can be carried back five years. That's huge because if you had you know, income, basically if you paid income tax anywhere from, 13, from 2013 through 2017, if you had losses in these years, you may be able to carry it back and, and get some of that money back. So that's pretty cool. Um, okay, now, obviously I mentioned that to carry these loss back, you may have to amend prior returns to provide refunds. Now, although the carrybacks may go back as far as 2013, filing, filings are considered timely if filed within 120 days after enactment of the law, which again, March 27th, 2020. Modification of limitation on losses for taxpayers other than corporations. There was a provision in the law which limited the loss allowed from trades or businesses of a taxpayer for losses incurred after 2017 and its index for inflation. For 2019, the amounts were scheduled to be a maximum of a $255,000 loss for um, an individual other than um, taxpayers that were married uh, filing jointly and then that number would have been $510,000. The limit under the new law is eliminated for years 2018, 2019, and 2020. Business interest expense limitation modification. For years after 2017, so we got, you know, obviously beginning in 2018, certain companies that averaged, it said 25 million, but it's indexed for inflation. So for 2019, it was companies that averaged 26 million or more in sales are limited in the amount of interest that they can deduct. The number is limited to 30% of adjusted taxable income. The law is amended for 2019 and 2020 to allow 50% instead of the 30% of adjusted taxable income. Last thing I want to mention in the business section is actually uh, a correction of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So due to a technical error in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, qualified improvement property which is defined as any improvement to a non-residential, that's the key, a non-residential building's interior that is not attributable to the enlargement of the building, an elevator escalator, or the internal framework of a building um, was not permitted immediate write-offs under the bonus depreciation regulation. So in other words, what happened was there used to be three different categories of what these qualified improvements were. When the law came out, the Tax Cut and Job Acts, it, it, it combined these into one category called qualified uh, improvement property. Now, the thing is, these three different types of improvement property that were combined were under the old code classified as 15-year property, even though normally when you make leasehold improvements to a non-residential building, that would normally be considered 39-year property. In other words, you would depreciate that over 39 years. Now, the problem occurred that when the new law was written, the lawmakers forgot to classify this new qualified improvement property as 15-year property, and so it automatically defaulted to 39-year property. The problem with that, well, one, is you couldn't just take a straight 15-year depreciation, you had to take 39-year. And while uh, a lot of this qualified for Section 179, which is the code section that allows first-year expensing, the problem that you had was 
For taxpayers that spent more than $2.5 million on these improvements for one year, that number would start to phase out that the, the amount that you could totally deduct between $2.5 million and $3.5 million. So it worked just like the phase out that we talked about the recovery rebates. By the time you got the $3.5 million, you, got, you were not able to get any relief. So what happened was there was a technical correction made, and, and the problem was that there was something called bonus depreciation, right? And again, bonus depreciation applies only to um, assets with a depreciable life under 20 years. And because, again, when the law was written back in 2017, there was an error and the qualified improvement property was written as 39-year property, not 15-year property, it was not eligible for bonus depreciation full dispensing within the first year. Well, I'm happy to say that um, over two years later, the act has fi- the correction has finally been made, and taxpayers may file amended income tax returns to take advantage of the corrected provision. So again, this is what I have at least up to date uh, on on the new law. There will be some additional guidance that will be coming out, and as it does, I will keep everybody updated. Thanks again for listening to the Accounting Tips for Entrepreneurs podcast. If you could please head over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Spotify and leave me a five-star rating and write a review. Also, please connect with me on social media. If there are any tax or accounting-related topics you would like me to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. If you are that small business owner or entrepreneur that really wants to learn more about how to minimize your tax liability and maximize your income, just head over to www.jeffcpaworld.com and I'll see you over there. Have a great day.